Hi guys, it's Andy McDonald from the Informed Performance Podcast. Welcome to the show and the first episode of a new decade. On today's episode, I have Dr. Matt Tuttle, the lead sports scientist and physical therapist for NBA team, the Denver Nuggets. On this episode, we really hone in on Matt's interest in pain science, and he provides us with a very pragmatic and evidence-based insight into how he manages pain within an elite athlete population. Whatever platform you're listening to this episode on, please hit subscribe to receive the latest episodes as soon as they come out. We're starting this new year with some fantastic guests, so please make sure you don't miss out. Hi Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks for giving up your time today. Um, just to begin with, could you give us a little spiel on your your education and your background, just to get us up to up to speed on where you are now? Absolutely. I appreciate you having me, Andy. I'm looking forward to it. So I uh, I did my DPT at Upstate Medical in Syracuse, New York. Went from there into my sports residency and my manual therapy fellowship with EIM. Along the way, doing a little bit of work with uh, military population and special forces, as well as then kind of moving from there into professional soccer with the North Carolina Courage and North Carolina FC, and then kind of his stuff just kept rolling pretty quick. Uh, the Denver Nuggets reached out, had a connection here, and then jumped on with them three seasons ago now. So it's been kind of a wild ride since 2014 uh, when I graduated from school. So been a blast, but I'm interested, I suppose, to see where the rest of this goes. And how's your department structured at Denver Nuggets and kind of what's your role within that team? Mm-hmm. So... I fit in, my my official title is lead sports scientist and physical therapist, and, but there's really, there's two PTs, two athletic trainers, two strength coaches, and a massage therapist, so our performance staff really is uh, seven of us more in like the core unit, and then of course we've got our physician team that we work with, we've got a couple of psychs that we work with, a nutritionist, um, so some more people out on the periphery, but inside of that unit there's seven of us my role fits in kind of dealing with more of our athlete management system and building out what our uh, programming long-term programming looks like our athlete monitoring whether that's internal external measures subjective stuff what are we doing why uh, and then processing that data to make it more digestible for coaches in front office which i think inside of the sports science specific world get gets missed out on sometimes that the education to others needs to be very basic. Uh, but then of course I spend, spend a lot of my time at work also just treating athletes. So quite a mixed and varied role for you over there. Yeah, absolutely. I love it. I think it keeps me, it keeps me fresh and it allows me to bounce back and forth both in my kind of clinical practice and then also uh, in my reading research and, and further education. And I'm curious because you, you know, obviously if you're doing the PT side of it and the sports science side, um, you're getting lots of information from lots of different angles about the players' injuries, their loads, their their time on court, all the kind of metrics that goes into that. How do you um, sort of funnel that down to being critical information to feed onto the playing-based coaches? Yeah, it's, it's a challenge. So we've built out... Uh, kind of a daily report for our coaching staff and our front office that gives them a look at uh, just kind of composite data of everything we're gathering. So they get a daily report uh, 
with those metrics and then have been steadily trying to pump out more educational material on on things just such as like, hey, here's what, when we say subjective load, here's what this means. When we're talking about a mechanical load, this is what that means. And I think that's helping uh, our application with the coaches is that they understand a little bit more uh, than they did hopefully a few years ago when we started a lot of this. And I think the mistake that I had made previously uh, was just expecting that people understood, but they have so many other demands from the coaching side that I stepped back this year and I was like, Hey, give them, you need to build a base for these understandings before we can jump into higher level discussion. So it's been, it's been a really good experience this year. Yeah. Cause I guess, you know, for you, even the minutiae of details is important, but you've got to, you've got to pick the things that matter to somebody else in that team. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, uh, you're right. That the idea is like always getting stuck in the weeds. And I think as a performance staffs and just, I'd say even clinicians, sometimes we get, we get lost in the nonsense a little bit instead of, Hey, what's really important? Like what is like in athletics and elite sport, what is our 80% bang for our buck? And are we doing that really well? Like are our athletes sleeping well, are they eating well? If we're not checking two pretty basic boxes, like, yeah, it's cool to get lost in the weeds on kind of some of these nerdier discussions on, you know, what is their mechanical load from a game to a practice? What's that difference like and why? What is their top speed? But none of that matters, really. If the programming isn't good, if their sleep's not good, if their nutrition's not good. And so getting back to those basics and educating others on it has been uh, a bit refreshing, too. Yeah. And to dive in amongst your your vast experience, I'm aware you've got a particular interest in pain science within the elite athlete population. Um, obviously, managing pain is is well within the bread and butter scope of being a PT or a or a physiotherapist. Um, what inspired your personal interest in pain? I would say uh, a lot of compliments to uh, Evidence in Motion's uh, Manual Therapy Fellowship because they take a take a pretty modern spin on the manual therapy and you spend a good amount of time learning about kind of modern pain science if we want to call it that or the the names have changed on how they phrase this a million times but uh one of my uh, fellowship mentors in particular jason steer out of uh the seattle area had a big interest in that and kind of was a big influence on me diving deeper into this. And then as I was working in professional soccer, recognizing how little of this was really applied, there's just a, such a strong biomechanical model to sports. And again, I think that is really important and we can't lose sight of that, right? There is, there's still biomechanical force that causes injury that cause kind of overload syndromes, but we were missing this big component of how does pain management really work uh, in elite athletes or elite sport? So trying to dive in and apply some of the research, and there's been some good papers that have come out, uh, like a couple of really good overviews in BJSM that, that look at this and talk about the application. And not all the listeners um, will be as familiar with pain science as the more medically interested professionals tuning in. Could you just define pain for us and get everyone up to speed on where is pain science at now? How's it being currently um, described? 
Yeah, so I, I believe that there was actually an updated uh, definition recently that I'd have to go back in and double check because I wouldn't want to misword it. But previously, uh, the International Association for Pain described it as an unpleasant sensory and emotional experience associated with actual or potential tissue damage uh, or described in terms such as such as that. So trying to understand that pain is an experience and an output from the brain that pain is not an input to the system as the old model so you know something as simple as stepping on a tack it, it's not an immediate pain input into the system right there's a lot happening throughout your nervous system to get pain as an output from your brain um, would be the simplest uh, probably definition and then understanding that kind of an individual's prior experience, their attention, mood, stressors, genetics, any sensitization of the nervous system can affect how painful that output feels, um, or even if it is perceived as pain. And you've touched upon it, but why are clinicians perhaps not evolving beyond the biomechanical model? Because a lot of the literature on pain science has been around for a little while now, but compared to the biomechanics stuff, which is a bit older, why have people not perhaps progressed through that? Boy, that's a really great question. I don't know if I've gotten that one uh, before. I think if I, ha- if I had to step out on it, I think we get really comfortable in what we do. Um, is as just a general rule, and I think it's where you see some of that research that says it takes ten years or so, or a, you know, a full decade for for clinical practice to model what the research was saying. So I think there's a little bit of an aspect to that. I also think that the biomechanical model is like it just ma- it inherently makes sense. There's a lot of face validity to well, you sprained your ankle, so there's obviously tissue damage to a ligament, and that's why this hurts, or Hey, this guy has had, this individual's had back pain for 10 years. Well, he plays professional football and he lifts heavy weight. So it makes sense that there's too much stress there and he's going to have some pain. But, you know, looking at acute and chronic injury with a little bit of a different spin uh, to appreciate maybe this more biopsychosocial model uh, of pain and injury, I think is ultimately more beneficial for our athletes. And, NBA teams play, you know, more than once per week. You travel a lot, and it's it's without a doubt a very tough schedule compared to other sports. How do you navigate the challenges or strategies of managing pain in competing athletes mid-season? Because you can't always pull them out. So how do you no, how do you uh, kind of approach it? That's a, it's a great question. So we to to backtrack a little bit, we look at over three games a week for the majority of our season. Um, 82 games across the course of the year and you know thousands of miles traveled for just just getting around from game to game and a lot of times playing uh, back-to-back days i mean there's a lot of stressors placed on the athletes and the staffs in these systems as well so our goal and our our model uh, with the nuggets is that our goal is to have our players available for as many games as absolutely possible. So, so if you play 82 games, every one of those games is worth over a percent of your season. So what can we do to manage athlete stress, athlete pain? Uh, for us, I would say we really look at, like I mentioned before, sleep, 
nutrition would be like two of the bigger ones understanding what our programming is from a, a practice standpoint in there and then monitoring athlete workload on top of that because uh, there's so many factors that build into what can an athlete can perceive as pain and at any point right if an athlete is is really experiencing that much pain like it it makes sense why you would need to bench them but i think by managing some of these other stressors like sleep nutrition general recovery programming and then monitoring workload on top of that then you have a better chance down the road uh for availability i hope that i hope that answers your question it was kind of a long answer no you're completely and something i was thinking then was you know pain's not an opt an optimal state of health but plenty of athletes in in lots of different leagues have pain and still perform with it um for varying reasons as a clinician having those conversations with athletes where do you draw the line of how much pain is acceptable to play or train with absolutely so that's a great question and it's it's pretty heavy uh um, <laughs> sorry about that one th no it's great i love it uh i think that there's we have kind of tried to build into our model a little bit in understanding we have a we have an awesome system top down with the nuggets but it, it helps that we are we have drafted a lot of our players and been able to develop them coming out of college so they've been in our kind of performance system if you want to call that for for years now but like building an understanding with them that one having pain is normal right like people are going to have pain intermittently throughout life now having chronic excruciating pain is not uh but but having some aspect of pain, particularly with the load and the stress that these guys are under is normal. So we, we try and build that understanding with our guys all while at the same time, you know, obviously not putting them in harm's way just to make them available to make them available, but talking to them. And I think this is where true, like having really great relationships and this gets thrown out a lot and is oftentimes glazed over, but having great relationships with your athletes and understanding their injury history, maybe their movement profile, their pain history, um, and then having objective measures to compare all of this stuff to allows a decision-making between ourselves, the athlete, and the coach as to what risk we're really willing to take. Because it ultimately, it's how comfortable are you with a percentage of risk with every guy going on the floor every night? Because you're never going to you know, I wish it was as simple as like, oh, they say it's a six out of 10. We just, we just don't play. But, you know, if it's a six out of 10 on a chronic adductor strain and it's game seven of the finals and it's, you know, one of your star, it's your star player, you know, is that management different than, than in the regular season? So I think the big, the bigger pieces to kind of spin it back is we'd be like educating the athlete and the coaches on, what they're feeling and what may or may not be causing that and then determining what our risk level is uh, and then also just you know it's still a winning industry like if they're having pain that they can't perform on regardless if the risk is low then it's obviously not worth putting them out there but so there's a lot of layers to kind of peel back onto what availability happens around a painful experience and i'm, I'm curious to know um obviously kind of youth players coming through in basketball you know play through high school um trying to get into college play through college then the whole time they're there they're trying to get into the nba and they they do have the summer league to kind of help transition them from 
being a college player to being a pro player in the NBA. But are you? Do you ever see a difference between these players kind of steeply coming up through the leagues and how much pain they have versus maybe a senior player where conventionally you might expect the senior older players to carry more pain? Are you seeing it in that linear relationship, or are you seeing these rookies coming through? with kind of, you know, more adverse pains and um, reports of it. Absolutely. There's a little bit of research out there on like, and it's hard to, it's hard to spin it uh, totally into your question, just on like which players are getting injured and how injury uh, epidemiology, I suppose, progresses across the course of the career. There's a little bit out there, but more in terms of the, because that, that seems to be a different discussion, but more in terms of like the pain experience of younger versus older players, I think like my bias goes to diving into that early specialization research on athletes. And you you touched on it. These kids are playing so much throughout the ranks, coming up through AAU to college, into the professional ranks. And they're really, it's been so sport specific since they were eight, nine, 10, 11 years old. Uh, that the stressors that they've had on their body have been so consistent throughout um, that they're at an increased risk for certain injury types and certain pain profiles. Uh, so we definitely see stuff in our younger guys that it's just like, well, they've been playing basketball for you know, maybe 10 or 11 years by the time they hit the NBA at 19 years old. Um, and what has that done to their to their body? So you, know, you think about pitchers that we see some changes in humoral rotation because of the stressors they've been putting on their body. It's the same for every athlete. So an athlete that spends this much time jumping, right, it has a change on their system. So certain bony adaptations, certain tendon adaptations, um, and movement adaptations. So we try and dive into that a little bit more and you know, are we actually changing stuff or are we just trying to prevent maybe some of these chronic, chronic pains, um, like these chronic tendinopathies or chronic ankle injury stuff. Um, but I would say those are probably the two to answer your question and a way longer, uh, more wordy version. <laughs> no, thank you. Um, I'm aware you might have to be sensitive to, um, your organization, but I'm interested to know beyond the kind of textbook assessment, diagnosis, um, interventions and management approaches that we take as clinicians. Um, what's your philosophy or approach to athlete care? If an athlete walks into the training room with, let's say, a, a non-traumatic report of pain, what does the process look like if it looks different to, say, a conventional setting? Wow. Yeah, that's, you're, you have some great questions and some ones that uh, I haven't gotten before. I think that that that's a really that's a really interesting one. I think for us, it still has like if a guy if if one of our individuals comes in and says they have you know an increase in low back pain, just because this is one that kind of uh, clinicians can relate to as well. And for us, it is it's a pretty formal eval process, right? We will so we have a smaller training room set up relative to a lot of the league, but we will, we'll sit down, we'll go through a full subjective, a full objective, uh, assessment on these individuals trying to determine, you know, for our best evaluation skills, maybe what is the cause or what is the symptom generator, uh, for this pain. Um, and then we're really privileged that we've worked with some of these athletes for years. If 
not just worked with them for years, like you have repeat patients come back in the clinic, but years like we're seeing these guys every single day in season for years. Um, so we have a lot of previous subjective interviews, a lot of objective measures, you know, whether it's from prior injury or just baseline that we can compare this to, uh, myself and our other PT are both, uh, fellowship trained and kind of more of a, a Maitland approach, uh, if we were going to get really specific, um, but more of a, what is a symptom generator, assess, reassess, uh, model. So for our pain, for our athletes in pain, that's where it goes. But then on those other layers, we can also look into our athlete management system on what does workload look like for these guys recently? Has there been a big spike in minutes in game? Is there some external factors that may be influencing stress, anxiety, uh, that would also be increasing pain. Was there something, you know, did they lift in the weight room recently? And this may just be kind of a different muscle soreness than they've normally felt. So we're able to bring a really a kind of a more cohesive picture together, um, based on understanding their prior history a little bit more in depth. And then also seeing them for more hours throughout the day. Uh, and then from there, just jumping into what is our management of, of an injury or pain. Do you find your kind of, you know, maybe less objective, but your, your clinical intuition, if you like, or your gut um, instincts as to how you manage athletes get stronger because you've got so much time perhaps with a, a smaller patient population where you can really get to know everything about them physically, emotionally. You know, you really get to know these guys. Do you find you can rely on that a bit more? Uh, boy, <laughs> this is a fun one. Um, I think I, I think probably is the answer. Uh, we try, myself and our other physio, try and keep each other in check a little bit also on, you know, there is, there is some research out there that longer-term practicing clinicians, like their observation skills and such change, and maybe sometimes that change is not for the better, that we think we're more accurate than we really are. So, we lean uh, on our objective measures, but at the same time, there is always going to be a gut feel, especially in a time of like, can this guy go? Can he not go? What? How much risk are they really under? Um, but definitely, like to, to answer the question more specifically, having the relationship with the guys makes a really big difference. And I find that has been, you know, go, coming from soccer where I'd been with a lot of those athletes for a couple of years into my first year in the NBA was really challenging because I didn't have those relationships anymore to lean on. Uh, now having three years of mostly the same locker room, uh, I have those relationships. I can lean on them. I can help make some decisions. And I think you can ask some more honest, honest questions of guys at times um, and feel like they're really giving you the answer where before maybe they were, they were putting a spin on it because they didn't want to reveal certain information. Mm. I think it's an interesting one in sport because um, compared to, say, a normal practice, when you're in a professional sports team, you've got all the data that you need of athlete management systems and sports science. Um, but, yeah, thanks for your honesty because ultimately you still have to make a judgment, don't you? You can have all this objective yeah. information, but there still comes a point where there's no algorithm and you've got to just – you've got to make a judgment and you've got to make a decision. Yeah, absolutely. And, like uh... – you know, again, never putting our athletes at harm because I would say ultimately you're always 
just as a, as a provider, you're always going to be more cautious than just rolling the bones just to do it. Um, but it is, it is that interesting balance of like, Oh boy, is he, is he good to go or not? Have we, you know, if a certain objective measure is 15% down from what their baseline is, is that normal? Is it acceptable? Are we putting them at too, too much risk? Is that a normal decrease for, uh, maybe you say strength in season? Is that a normal decrease for, for some objective measure in the middle of an NBA season where you're playing three games a week? Did, you know, did you just have, are you in the middle of a back to back and it's the second night and you got in at four in the morning and, you know, now they're having an increase in pain. Is it, is it fatigue related? Is it pain from the night before? Like there's, there's so many layers to these questions, which is what I enjoy so much. Um, but it, it does ultimately lead to these judgment calls. Of like, boy, we kind of got to trust our gut. Uh, and generally I would say clinicians do pretty well with that, but it certainly leaves you nervous for the next 48 minutes of the game. Yeah, it was interesting when I spoke when we spoke to Tim Gabbett on the show. He, uh, I'm probably going to butcher the quote, but he he said essentially there's a there's an art to this sports science thing, which I thought mm-hmm. really, which I thought just summed that up so well. Yeah, I think you know I I love that because it gets back to some of that concept of evidence based practice versus practice based evidence and just application of evidence. And so often it's easy to look at a study and be like, well. That's what the study said. Okay, cool. But their population was 30 people that were all of this perfect age that had no other factors and it wasn't done in NBA players. So is that information even applicable to what we're dealing with today? It's a, it's a question that we look at a lot and we're trying, we're working as a staff to try and uh, maybe bolster some of the, the body of research inside of uh, NBA athletes and NBA staffs because we find it important that research is truly applicable to the population you're working with. I, so much, like I think if we look at, say, uh, where most of the sports science research is coming from, it's really from Aussie rules football, uh, soccer, or football, and where you're naturally from, and rugby and so much of that is like all right well these are field-based sports so the the surface they're playing on is different they're not jumping at nearly the frequency our guys are their height is different their mass is different uh and because their demands their strength profiles are different their range of motions are different it's like well you have all these questions and now it's like all right but we want to apply the research done on those athletes who also only play once a week to our guys it's like oh boy we're really we're really guessing at some point here because that's not you know is it the best available evidence absolutely because it is the only evidence available but is it the most applicable i you know i guess the question would be back on other clinicians is it even applicable Mm -hmm. i guess it's definitely an optimistic leap that you're trying to make with it at times yeah for sure and you just don't there aren't as many answers out there as like you said a clean cut algorithm like well, they have pain, so they're not playing. We, if we said that with our athletes, we'd we'd be struggling to uh, to field a full team and rotation in game some games because you get into January of the NBA season, you've played forty one games, and guys are getting six hours of sleep a night because you're on a five game road trip. So we can't we can't be so rigorous with how we do this and. 
some of the kind of pain science, like true pain science research is the human body is way more resilient than we give it credit for too. So let's, let's keep that consideration in mind when we're, when we're making some of these decisions. And, you know, we've spoken a lot about kind of decision-making and, um, the kind of more the assessment piece, um, beyond what your clinical assessment picks up as perhaps the the cause for an injury or the reason for pain, what are the kind of tools or techniques that you typically use within your clinical arsenal to try and get someone's pain under control? Yeah, it's a great question. I think we lean, um, again, I, I've mentioned it uh, with two physios that are, that are manual therapy fellows. It, there is still a manual basis uh, to some of our techniques where you know, without diving so far into the kind of the mechanisms research that there's still a place and a time, uh, for manual therapy. And like BJSM did have a review on, you know, when massage is appropriate or outcomes of massage and athletes. So whether it's soft tissue work to joint mobilizations, to manipulation, uh, to say cupping or needling, when you get into some of the more fringe kind of manual therapy techniques uh i think it's always maintaining a perspective too on what is the athlete's perception of what's going to make them feel better too and i think sometimes that's a total cop-out but you know if doing some soft tissue on an individual's calf allows us to get to the kind of meat and potatoes of some exercise intervention some movement intervention then I'll, I'll spend five or six minutes doing it so that I can get to the stuff that I believe truly matters. But at the same time, nobody really gives a shit what I believe. Like what matters is what the athlete believes and whether or not they're going to be able to perform that night. And if they're going to feel better, uh, nobody comes to an NBA game to see my treatment strategies. Nobody gives a shit. Like if we can get that athlete on the floor that night, that's what matters. Uh, at the same time, not, you know, shooting yourself in the foot and falling off the wagon and not appreciating research. Um, but then, in, you know, to get circle back, cause I get on these tangents, uh, we also kind of we're believers in kind of the BFR, uh, the utilization of that in sport and understanding some of the mechanisms behind that. So, and then also just progressive strength training and loading. So, stronger athletes are more resistant to stress. So long-term, can we keep our athletes strong and resilient while kind of some of our more short-term treatments may be manual therapy or movement style treatments? I think there's still, it gets back to that biomechanics question from earlier, right? Like how are these athletes moving and why? Uh, so, so I hope that answers it. Uh, but those would be kind of our paradigm. It sounds like the kind of the not too extreme but like the manual therapy method doesn't matter too much it's, it's still underpinned by evidence and reasoning but it sounds like um you use that to get you to the next stage of being able to load them and um progress them rather than getting too hung up yeah. on whether pubmed completely agrees with you of the hard science yeah like i mean realistically like is it you know if i'm doing just some true massage techniques versus cupping like Let's be real. It's all a soft tissue intervention. It's just, it's just what it is. Um, so does it, does the soft tissue inter intervention matter? Like I have 
no idea. Maybe in some people it does, maybe in some people it doesn't. I think it gets back to this. You know, I had a mentor that always was like, it's, it's N of one, right? It, the research study is the athlete in front of you at that exact moment. It's not the study that you read in BJSM that was published 15 years ago. Um, so if you can do something and the athlete moves a little bit better right afterwards and their perception is different, well, shit, that's, that's cool with me. Um, I also think there's a great paper, uh, oh boy, Jones in O'Shaughnessy. I might be screwing that up from like 2014 called the pain and movement reasoning model that, you know, it's a little simplistic, but at the same time, I think it keeps you from getting caught in the weeds of just like, what are your three influencers of pain? So is it local stimulation, re- like a regional influence or kind of a more CNS guided uh, cause of the pain? Or is it a blend of two? Is it a blend of three? Um, and then picking your interventions based on that. Um, so I, I think that makes sense, right? Like if they're, somebody has an acute ankle sprain, so their local issue, it's, it's a local issue. They sprain their ankle. Like, yes, maybe it happened because of weakness somewhere else in the chain or because they didn't sleep the night before, but we still have to decrease inflammation, return strength to baseline, do some balance exercise and then move on. So, you know, the treatment strategy may vary from injury to injury, obviously, but using some kind of model like that to pick your interventions can be helpful. It's nice to hear you talking about it in a in a scientific and evidence-based way but still with the art and the flexibility and the kind of appreciation that you've got to make judgments and you've got to treat what's in front of you it's quite refreshing to hear that because i think we do get a bit bogged down in um what the latest you know lit review says or the latest meta-analysis yeah i actually had a uh it's, it's funny you say that and i i appreciate the compliment i really do um by no stretch do i think i have this this figure it out. I get lost in my brain all too often, but I had a student reach out actually just boy last late last week. Um, asking a question like that, like, Hey, I've read all these papers. I've watched all these videos. Like what the hell does all of this mean? Um, I think that's where you get bogged down in the shit. Sorry, the length it's starting to fly by the seat of my pants a little bit here. Uh, that's so good. Like you just can't, like you can't live in being bogged down or like if your decision-making is so clouded by the 15 different papers you're trying to analyze, like you're missing the, you're missing the big picture. It's still about the athlete or the patient feeling better now and into the future. Like what is going to help them now? And then what can we do to, I hate prevention, reduce risk into the future. So let's live more in that world as opposed to this, like get stuck in the nonsense. And it, it's easy, right? And I float back and forth. Like if you, if we had a call in another week, I might be like way into the weeds on some weird journal articles, but still returning always like our goal as an organization is to win games right now. And our players would tell you the same thing, right? Like we're trying to win now and be better and perform at our highest level so how do we do that i'm going to skip over the injury prevention stuff because i think that's a minefield of a conversation um that i think we're no way near um uh ready to fix as a term um it's definitely getting used a lot as a word oh god it's just such shit like yeah <laughs> come on we're not we're not preventing anything um you know we're we're reducing risk and it 
I think the see now you, you open the door, so we're gonna we're gonna dive into it anyway. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like if we look at the ankle, like ankle sprains, I think are an easy one. Um, in the NBA, you're not preventing ankle sprains; you're reducing the risk of athletes potentially having one. That with an injury so common, with guys jumping as frequently as they are and landing on feet, like what can you do to reduce risk? So is that you know we've touched on some of it. Is it your athletes? recovering appropriately so sleeping well eating well um, just generally taking care of their body we can go into the recovery research on a different question but like are they recovering well enough that their body can appreciate and deal with the stress of in-game then what you know kind of biomechanical or movement factors may influence uh, an athlete having a frequency of ankle sprains what is their prior history so they've sprained an ankle 15 times what is what is their chance of doing it again and then what are our intervention strategies to try and address that beyond what's been mentioned is it a load factor is it a strength factor do we need to use some external factors like an orthotic or a brace to try and reduce the risk there all while at the same time understanding that if an athlete falls out of the sky and lands on somebody that the force from the fall can still, regardless of how many things you've done, potentially result in an ankle sprain. So yeah, it's, you're never getting rid of, you're never preventing it. You're just trying to help your chances that when some, you know, uh, Gabbett talks about like worst case scenario in game. And of course he's talking about it differently than maybe an acute injury, but like, what can you do for that worst case moment to help the athlete's risk be lower of sustaining an injury or potentially this is the other thought, uh, maybe it being a lower degree like did did some of your intervention stop it from being a, a a grade two maybe it's a grade one or maybe like was a bad grade two to a less bad grade two uh you know it does get into the weeds for sure because people think they're gonna do exercises to prevent the injury but i think doing exercises to reduce the risk of injury is just good conditioning and should be, yeah. you know, if you want to improve performance, one of the biggest ways to do that is keep your guys on the court. So factor in good conditioning that addresses the at-risk areas rather than preventing injury as such. Yeah, I would just say it's good programming. Yeah. Like, it's like fundamentally it is understanding the research in your patient population as to what injuries are most prevalent then diving into each one of these, those injuries on its own and what risk reduction strategies are out there and then programming it back into your athletes and the demands of your game uh, to try and reduce the outcomes. And Because the real goal on a performance staff is for our coach every single night to have every athlete available. That's That's our part of the ultimate performance paradigm of trying to win games like if our athletes are healthy we have a better chance to succeed so if you do if you understand these other components and can build great programming and adjust it year to year or week to week that's probably where you're going to get get your most success but again i'm still not sure if i've got any of this figured out (laughs) and you're more than warmed up so i've got a a pretty big final question for you um we know there's generally a poor relationship between diagnostic imaging and patient reported pain 
Um, but conversely, if you work in elite sports globally, you typically have bigger budgets and um, diagnostic imaging readily available on demand. Um, as a clinician in, in your setting, how do you personally decide on when and why you should image when you've got both these kind of competing factors at play? Oh, this might be a long answer. So I apologize to the listeners if this gets if this gets extra winded. Uh, I would say that my viewpoint on that has changed dramatically since I graduated five and a half years ago or whatever. So, you know, especially working in professional soccer where the budget was small and we didn't have access to it, leaning a lot on the research of, hey, do we have to image this? Is you know, what is ultimately what is most appropriate for the athlete at this time? And then is this something that we're going to image and find nothing and we're 99% sure because of the research out there that this is nothing. Um, so that was kind of my initial paradigm and not saying that that's right or wrong. Um, then as you move into, into a league like the NBA where you mentioned it, the, the money is just so absurd it's hard to wrap your brain around it and every decision is scrutinized by fans media coaches front office right everybody's got their opinion on what the what the good medical decision is um my my view has shifted a little bit so the utilization of imaging is not always bad as we sometimes spin it in school uh, and even in some of the public health studies, it's like, ah, imaging's the worst thing in the world. Well, it's still beneficial. Like it's still, it's still a piece of the puzzle. Uh, for us, we definitely utilize it more than I used to in soccer or, or anything that I would talk to physicians about in clinical practice. But at the same time, I think it is having a good spin when you're looking at the results. So when the radiologist reads it and the report is pumped out and say it's your ortho, that's the next one to look, it's you and your ortho looking at it next together. One, it's having great trust and a great physician team around you to assist with, with some of these decisions. Uh, but also how do we all spin this with the athlete? So like an MRI for back pain in an athlete, you know, we're doing it obviously because we have, we have some symptom pattern that is indicative of needing it. Uh, like say it is a radic type symptom uh, in one of these athletes. It's like, all right, well, this is important to image. So we can view, we can make sure some other more concerning things aren't going on. But then the spin with the athlete is, Hey, we have found X, Y, and Z. This stuff tends to recover on its own across natural course. In addition with, all the medical management that you're going to have around you and exercise and treatment. And so kind of from that pain science world, it's just like decreasing the value that we put on it, but also having it there. Cause God forbid you had an acute injury and you missed something. Like if you thought it was a simple ankle sprain, but you are that 1% that misses uh, a fibula fracture or, you know, you think it's some foot soreness and you're, you're missing a stress reaction in the foot that could turn into an avascular necrosis like that in an athlete that is making millions and millions of dollars a year is definitely a little bit different, especially when 
the access to imaging is so easy. Um, so it's a balance, right? We don't, I would say we definitely don't like image everything. That's not our go-to. Um, but when we do, we try and put a spin on it for our athletes that shows that we're not living on this image, but we have this to make sure that you are comfortable, uh, with our plan going forward. Yeah. That makes complete sense. Thank you. That was a, um, that's a big question to answer. So, well, they've all been big questions to answer. So, um, yeah, thank you very much for your honesty. Absolutely. I just, I like that one. Cause initially when I got into the NBA, just totally honest, I was like, you know, we'd sit around, we meet every day as a, as a performance staff. Oh, Hey, we're looking at getting an MRI this afternoon on something. I'd be like, fuck that. that no, that doesn't make any sense. Like we know what we're going to see. And I was like, you know, as I started to learn kind of the landscape of the league more and all the other influences on not just us being front office coaches, media, fans, et cetera, et cetera, but also all the other layers for the, for the player from their agent to their families, to their friends and who's in their ear saying they need imaging. They don't need imaging. Like at some point it's just, we can get the image and then it's, how do you react to those answers? And making sure that you educate all of the people involved in decision-making around uh, professional athletes. Cause that, that's really what it comes down to. I guess when you, I guess you, when you consider everything, you can maybe save some time if you not, not that you just want to get it out of the way, but um, if you get the image and everybody's on the same page, you can progress with the athlete themselves a bit quicker. Yeah. And you don't, I think you create better relationships too. Like, is it worth, you know, the agents in the NBA represent, you know, it's not one agent for one player. There's a few agents that represent several players. And, you know, if they're saying, Hey, our group, like our agency, our player, the player's family and friends, we'd all be more comfortable imaging this because we're concerned for his, his health and safety. It's like, well, am I going to, are we going to fight with somebody that we already have a good relationship with, that there's some professional relationship and personal relationships, or it's like, all right, we understand where your request is coming from. Our medical staff as a whole, us as kind of the physios, the physician team, our front off, we're all comfortable with, with that, that ask. And now you create better long-term relationships. I mean, realistically this is gonna this this comes off a little brash maybe like because there is definitely harm in over imaging but on an individual level if it's just if it's doing an mri on again i could just go back to ankles because it's easy on an ankle injury long term like just do it and you prevent so much nonsense down the road and the potential that you missed something really concerning and maybe you miss it and initially it would have been one or two games lost and now the athlete's missing six weeks and god forbid that would be in a contract year and now you're affecting them long term and their financial stability so it's like again it's just getting into these layers and you start peeling it back and it's like if you just did the image and take care of the nonsense um, and get everybody involved peace of mind now we can just move forward Mm. there's more pieces moving than than just the clinical then (sighs) oh yeah (laughs) it's a lot there's a lot going on uh, at any given time and it's why I think for us meeting as a staff every day and creating that open communication amongst our staff is so important that we're all on board with what's going on with our athletes uh, so that 
you know, like some people that you got seven minds in a room, sometimes somebody spits out an idea and you're like, Oh crap, the other six of us didn't think of that. Let's, let's try that or let's move down that Avenue. So that communication allows us to understand what stressors are on the athletes and all these other moving pieces uh, with maybe a little bit better success ultimately for our athletes. Well, thanks so much for your um, transparency. It's really appreciated, especially given that you're, you know, you're working at a big organization. Yeah, absolutely. I I appreciate you having me on, I think. And where can listeners um, follow you or um, get more information from you? Yeah, so my my Twitter, I'm not the most active on social media. Um, my Twitter and my Instagram are Doc Tuttle DPT, so D O C T U T T L E DPT uh, for both of those. And then, you know, I'm always open to answering questions or having calls. So my email's MCT765 at Gmail. Uh, if I ever don't get back to you on one of these social media platforms or by email, don't be afraid to just to send me another email following up because in the in the craziness, I may have read it in the middle of the night and then gone to sleep in a different state an hour later. So I'm, I'm always open to trying to, to help with these discussions and help with understanding for, uh, for people out there. Brilliant. Well, Matt, thanks so much for coming on the show today. I've really, uh, really enjoyed talking to you today. Absolutely. Thank you, Andy. I want to thank Matt again for coming on today's show and being a brilliantly open and honest conversationalist. I really enjoyed the level of knowledge and practical reality that he shared on all the topics discussed. Anything or anyone mentioned in this episode can be found at the show notes, which you can find on informperformance.com. In the meantime, you can find us on Instagram at informperformance or on Twitter at informpod. Our next guest will be Ed Lee, strength and conditioning coach at Harlequins Rugby, which you'll be able to listen to in a week's time. So keep a lookout for that one. Thanks for listening to the Inform Performance podcast.